standing as we read the passage for today in John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they said nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent, sent me is true, and in, in him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, then I am going to, be, uh, going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to di dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. History is full of de de decisive, that's the word I was looking for, decisive events that changed the course of the world. Of course, in Scripture, we see Noah's flood, which changed all of creation, and um, the Tower of Babel after that, that divided the nations in language groups. And then we see the conquest of Alexander the Great that Hellenized the whole world, or at least the world, the known world at the time. The rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the rise of the British Empire, the defeat of the British by the American colonies, the defeat of Germany and Japan in World War II by American and Allied forces. And in each one of these major world events, world-changing events, there was typically a decisive moment that determined the outcome, such as George Washington crossing the Delaware River or the invasion at Normandy. But right here, starting with this passage, until Jesus is crucified six months later, this will be a life-changing, direction-changing, historical uh, direction for the Jew Jewish people. And from this point on, they will not be able to come back to where they need to be. So the rejection of Jesus that starts here in this passage, that begins to gain more and more momentum in the next six months, will have long-lasting consequences. Their unbelief will be passed down to their children, which should tell us, parents, how important it is uh, that we may remain faithful to the Lord because our children will often follow 
our example in that. In Matthew 27, 24 through 25, Jesus um, was standing before Pilate. And Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, it says, but rather that a riot was beginning. So he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the, the people, the same people that Jesus is talking to in John 7, these same people answered Pilate and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Their rejection of Jesus was so strong that they were willing for the guilt of their actions to not only be placed on themselves, but on their children as well. And historically, that's exactly what, what's happened. The Jews, even to this day, still reject Jesus as their Messiah, showing themselves to be the true children of these first century Jews in Jerusalem. So from here on out, these events will lead up to the cross that will set the course of Judaism for generations to come, and the effects will still be felt to this very day. So the first thing I want us to look at is Jesus' teaching unopposed there in verse 25 and 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So the Jews from Jerusalem, notice specifically it's, it, it makes a distinction between those who had come in for the Feast of Booze uh, with the Jews that actually lived in Jerusalem. And these were the people in Jerusalem that were speaking this. And Jerusalem was not a very big city and so word traveled fast and they knew that the Jewish leaders intended or wanted to kill Jesus but when Jesus showed up in the temple to teach openly that puzzled them why aren't they arresting him why aren't they doing something about it have they been convinced that that he is the Christ I mean the Jews had been looking for Jesus for about a year and now he turns up they're not doing anything about it. Now, I, I don't think that they really believed that the Jewish authorities were convinced that Jesus was the Christ, but most likely they were saying this to kind of shame their leaders. Have they become followers of Christ? You, you'll notice that the leaders often say that to other people, right? Have you too been convinced? Are you deceived by them? He's going to say that to the soldiers here in a little bit. So most likely the crowd was kind of shaming their leaders for not doing anything about Jesus teaching openly in the temple. So the real problem is that the majority of the Jerusalem crowd, they think that they have Jesus all figured out. They think they, they've got it figured out. Look at verse 27. They said, but we know where this man comes from. We know him. We know where he comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so they've, they've got it all figured out. They know he's not the Christ because they know where he comes from, and they assume that no one would know where the Christ would come from. Now, the crowd believed in something that was 
obviously false. It was a false premise that led to a wrong conclusion. They assumed, and evidently this was something that was being taught around Jerusalem for a very long time. In fact, we know that this was also taught even through the second century, that when the Messiah would come, no one would know his origin. And we see this from several passages. They believe that the Messiah would suddenly appear out of nowhere, and, and they get this from passages like Malachi 3.1, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And so they use verses like this to think that he will just appear out of nowhere. He will just appear in the temple, and no one will know his origin. Now, again, this is uh, something that was around in the second century. If you uh, read the dialogue with um, uh, Trifo, a, a Jew, by Justin Martyr, uh, Trifo argued that Jesus could not be the Messiah because the Messiah is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Elijah comes to anoint him and make him manifest to all. So it's very similar to that first century belief. And this Jew in the second century believed that no one would know, not even the Messiah would know himself until uh, Elijah comes to anoint him. So this was a common misconception about Christ. However, we know that not all Jews believed it. And it shouldn't surprise us because there was different factions of Jews, right? There was the Sadducees, there were the Pharisees, there were even the Essene Jews outside of Jerusalem at the time. So there are a lot of different uh, opinions and beliefs that were around the city of Jerusalem. But we know that, that many of the scholars understood where Jesus would come from. In Matthew 2, 5, when the wise men came into Jerusalem seeking where Christ would be born, the chief priests and the scribes got together and told the wise men and Herod that Bethlehem uh, would be the birthplace of the Messiah, uh, using some of the Old Testament in Micah 2. So there was a theological disagreement among the Jews about the origin of the Messiah. The problem is they, that many were rejecting Jesus because he didn't match their expectations. Didn't think for a second that maybe their expectations were false, that something in their belief system was faulty. So Jesus responds to that idea in verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord, but who sent? But he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Now this is a little bit tricky in the translation. And really the first part of that sentence should be read with a little bit of irony in it. In fact, the RSV puts a question mark after that first little part, that first part of that sentence. And, it, and in the RSV, you would read it this way. You know me, and you know where I come from? You, you guys really think you know me? You know my origin? So what he's implying there is that you really don't know me, and you really don't know 
my origin. You don't know where I come from. You don't have the slightest idea. Leon Morris writes, if they had really known where Jesus came from, they would have known that he was indeed the Messiah. But all that they knew was that he came from Nazareth, an unimportant village in Galilee. They were quite ignorant of the virgin birth, of the truth that Jesus was from above, and that he was where he was because the Heavenly Father had sent him. Now, it's what's really strange, and I would imagine that the religious rulers would have done this, but probably kept quiet. All the records of the genealogy were kept there in the temple. And I'm sure that those religious leaders would have gone to those records and found out that Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. They would have records of his circumcision on the eighth day when they came into the temple. They would have had records that both uh, his mother and his father, Mary and Joseph, were both from the bloodline of David. They would have had those records. And it's interesting that the religious leaders never brought that up to the people. It's something that they probably would have buried. It would have been nice for these people to know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But they assumed that he was born in, in Galilee. They, were, they assumed he was born in Nazareth. And, and they said, well, Nazareth is unimportant. And there's nobody that's supposed to come from Nazareth. So they concluded that Jesus was not the Messiah. And Jesus said, I have not come of my own accord. Now, he's contrasting himself, unlike the religious leaders, that were seeking their own interest. Jesus was not seeking his own interest. He was seeking to do the will of his Father. That's what he came to do. But the religious leaders were there to seek their own interest. And then he says, he who sent me is true. He who sent me is true. And again, Unlike, unlike the Jewish leaders, the crowd really didn't care about the truth. And the Jewish leaders didn't care about the truth. They only cared what was politically expedient for them. And we live in a time right now that's very similar to that, don't we? It seems like that politicians and those who are running our country, it seems like they don't care about the truth at all whether it's Democrat or Republican, the truth is sacrificed for what will keep them in power. And that was very much what was happening here in Jerusalem. The human heart is still the same, and the desire for power and control is still the same in the human heart. And so we understand how they were operating. So Jesus is saying you know, that he who sent me is true. I didn't come for my own purpose. And then he says, and him you do not know. Isn't that interesting? Here they were standing in the temple, a temple dedicated to worship the God of Israel. And Jesus, the Son of God, was telling these people, you have no idea who God is. That's a very frightening thing, isn't it? I wonder how many people are in church this morning that the Lord could say that about. You have no idea who the God that you are trying to worship is. You don't even know him. And so he said, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. 
And so he is telling them his mission. He is telling them over and over again. You'll hear this phrase or very similar phrases repeated over and over again from Jesus. I know God. I came to reveal the Father. I and the Father are one. I come from him. He'll say this many, many times, and he sent me. He is affirming right here that he is the Messiah, sent from God. And yet, they still did not believe in him. But John, I think, is pointing this out and shows us multiple times where Jesus said, I know him, I come from him, he sent me. He says this multiple times throughout the gospel to remind his leaders that, I mean, his readers, that we are to listen to Jesus, that we are to believe in him because he was sent by the Father on this mission of redemption. Isn't it interesting that the majority of the people on this planet believe in God? I think it's still 98% of the people in this world believe in God. But few of those believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Every, everyone seems to have their own personal opinion about what God is like. But it's very fascinating, isn't it, that they won't listen to the one who came from the Father, the one who came to reveal the Father, the one who truly knows the Father. They won't listen to the words of the one who came from the Father. They will listen to their own ideas and imagination. So the crowd didn't believe in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit their preconceived notions of what the Messiah should be like. And in the same way, people are willing to believe in God as long as their preconceived notions aren't violated. Like, I can't believe in a God that would send anyone to hell. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Or, I can't believe in a God who wouldn't save everyone. And the real, uh, the real mystery that you, we need to point out when people say that is, I can't believe in a God who would save anyone. Much less everyone. He doesn't have to save anyone. Or some people will say all religions are the same. I have to, I have to laugh at that one because I know that I'm looking at a person that has never really studied all the religions because they're not. They're not all the same. Or some people, this seems to be the, the, the common phrase today, there are many ways to God. You just have to find your own way to God. That seems to be common knowledge, and if you try to confront that or say, well, that's not true, they'll call you arrogant, <laughs> right? But the reality is that the world really does not want to follow the true God. They don't want the true God. They're wanting to follow an idol that comes out of their own imagination. They want a God of their own making. They want a God created in their own image, not the God whom we were created in his image. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's where the world is. Everybody in this world thinks that they're on the right path. They think that it's a path that leads to life. Otherwise, they would change their path, wouldn't they? 
So there's a way that seems right to a man, but it is the way of death. And so the one who came from the Father, the one who knows the Father, he is the one that we are to listen to. And by the way, that's exactly what the Father said. In Luke chapter 9, verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's the Father saying to the Jews and to us through Scripture, to, to the whole world, listen to Jesus. Listen to him. He is my Son. But that's the very thing that people refuse to do. Now, in verse 30, this is very interesting. This was the reason, the real reason, why Jesus wasn't arrested. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's the real reason. No one could lay a hand on him because he was under the protection of the Father because his hour the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his trial, it had not yet come. So they could not arrest him. They could not put him in jail. They couldn't touch him. Now, this is a reminder to us that Jesus' fate was never in the hands of his enemies. Never was. In John 10, 17 through 18, Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. And then he says this, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. Now, I know that we live in a time, I think even the Nazis did this other times, that, that, uh, who, and who, who knows why the Nazis even cared. They hated Christians anyway, but they blamed the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ. Well, in a way, they rejected Christ. They called for his crucifixion. So from a human perspective, they were all involved in that, and they will stand in judgment. But ultimately, ultimately, the decision was Christ's. The decision was the Father's. No one takes it from me. No one takes my life, Jesus said, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes it, I give it freely. He says, I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then we know that there was a time when they tried to kill Jesus. You remember that in Nazareth? He was teaching in his hometown. And in Luke 4, 28 through 30, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. These are the people he grew up around. These were his hometown folks. And they rose up and drove him out of, out of the town and brought him to, to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off the cliff. They were leading him out. They were going to throw him off the cliff. But all of a sudden it says, but passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know what happened, but they were shuttling him out. They were getting ready to throw him off the cliff. And all of a sudden it's just like, they went a daze? I don't know. But Jesus just kind of just walked away. They couldn't do it. They couldn't touch him because his hour had not yet come. When he stood before Pilate, remember Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me 
at all unless it had been given to you from above. You have no authority over me, right? So Jesus, no one could touch him. And the reason they couldn't arrest him because his time had not yet come. Now, this is also important for us to remember as Christians, right? As Christ followers. Nothing can touch us unless it is allowed by the Father. That's true of us. Nothing can touch us unless it is allowed by the Father. Now, Jesus talking to his disciples about the time before the fall of Jerusalem. This was going to be a horrible time for the Jews. Jesus warned Christians what to do when you see the, the, the uh, uh, army surrounding Jerusalem. Then go out and uh, don't go back in the city. Go out and, uh, and, and run into the hills. And Jesus said that there would be difficult times. But he said this in Luke 21, 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. Yeah, it's going to be difficult times. It's going to be, it's going to be terrible. But not a hair on your head will perish. Now, we need to let that sink in a little bit. Nothing comes into our lives without the Lord's permission. And you say, well, I wish he wouldn't permit some of the things that come in my life, right? He, he allows it. And oftentimes, even though it hurts and though it's hard, those difficult times are designed to build us, to build our character. That's why we're the count of all joy when we face various trials, right? And we know that nothing will come into our lives without the permission of our Father. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that he was perfectly safe because it was not his hour. No one could touch him. And we need to understand that too. Nothing can harm us. And we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of COVID, do we? We don't have to be afraid of a virus. Is that more powerful than God? Is God up there scratching head, his head wondering what to do? This is not a time for Christians to be afraid. This is a time for Christians to have no fear so the world who is afraid of this will see the difference and wonder, why aren't you afraid of this? Well, I'm, we're not afraid because it's in the hands of my heavenly Father, right? We don't have to be afraid of terrorists. We don't have to be afraid of uh, of governments, because no one can touch us without the Lord's permission. And the Lord doesn't want, to, want us to live in fear. I mean, how many times does Jesus say, fear not, do not be afraid? Why are you afraid, he asked his disciples. Why were you afraid? Here I am, I'm, I'm here, right? Nothing can harm you. Nothing's going to get past me. And, and, and the reason why Christ does not want us to fear is that fear can paralyze us. Fear can paralyze us, and it will harm our witness to the world. If we're afraid just like the world is afraid, then what difference does God make in your life? Do you really believe he is sovereign and in control of all things? I used to tell soldiers in Iraq, before they were going out in the wire, we're getting ready to go on convoy, and, and you could tell some of them were nervous and everything. I used, to, I used to tell them that until it's your time to go, you're bulletproof. Right? Don't fear. 
And if it is your time to go, it doesn't matter if you're in a war zone in Iraq or walking down Main Street. It will be your time to go. And you can live in total fear and be paralyzed all of your life, wondering when that's going to happen. Or you can trust in the Lord, knowing that he has determined the day you were born, and he has determined the day you will die. And blessed be the name of the Lord, right? All of it is in his hands. The Lord has numbered our days. And the last thing that we need to be is paralyzed by fear. It may actually show that we really don't believe in the sovereign Lord who governs the universe. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues. That's a, that's a funny picture, isn't it? The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's, that means that the wicked, they're even afraid of their own shadow. Fear is what categorizes their life. Absolutely fear, absolute fear. It, but why are the righteous bold as a lion? Because they're not afraid. They're not afraid of anything. They trust in the Lord. And they know that nothing and no one can touch them without the Lord's permission. And if the Lord has permitted it, it's only for our good. And so we don't have to be afraid. So no one could touch Jesus because his hour had not yet come. Now, the crowd was full of unbelievers. But God always has his remnant. Look in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. Isn't that interesting? These may be the same people that later on when Peter stood up to preach <laughs> and said, you know, it was God's will that the Christ come and be crucified, but you guys did it. And what did they do? They said, what must we do to be saved? And, and Peter called them to repentance to believe and to be baptized, right? Well, um, these are probably the people who saw Jesus and believed and then were caught up in the crowd and then were later continued on. And these were the seed of the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem. 3,000 people were saved that day. And then we find later on up to 20,000 people. And then it continued to grow beyond that. So, here is the, the seed of the church right here. Some did believe in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, as if they so, have seen anybody do any miracles like Jesus did. They, they hadn't seen anything like this. But the question was, when the Messiah comes, should we expect him to do any more than he's done? And the answer to that is clearly no. What more signs should be expected for the Messiah to prove his identity? Now, that's a question we can ask today, right? How much more would Jesus have to do to prove to people that he was the Messiah? How much more? We can read about Jesus. We know something major, major happened in the first century that changed our whole dating system, by the way. It's 2021 because it marks Christ's birth. They were off for four, about four years, but 
but it marks the birth of Christ. It changed our whole day. Something happened in the world that took his brothers who were unbelievers and, and they became believers, that took a bunch of disciples who were cowards and running for their life to become bold as a lion, to preach in front of the very people that killed Jesus and said, you guys crucified him, so you need to repent and believe. How did the disciples become so bold after running for their lives when Jesus was arrested? The only thing that can explain that is the resurrection of Christ. They saw him alive. How much more does Jesus, what, what more does he need to do to convince people of the world, even today, that he is the Messiah? I mean, if we look at the life of Christ, we can look into the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophecies. Someone calculated it's, that Jesus fulfilled well over a hundred prophecies of the Old Testament in his lifetime including being born of a virgin, including uh, being born in Bethlehem, the things that Jesus could not have done on his own. The fact that he was crucified, the fact that he died, he was raised from the dead, all of that in the Old Testament. All of that predicted. The fact that, that as he was being crucified, the soldiers gambled for his robe. All of that written in the New Testament. So the details of his birth and the details of his death are all written in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. And then, even since then, just think that the church went from 12 men down to 11. And then the day of Pentecost and other followers, that church began to grow and there is roughly about 2.5 billion in this world today that believe that Jesus is the Christ. That should serve as some. It's, like it's, it's not like Jesus just preached that he was the Messiah. Some people believe and it just kind of phased out. Particularly when Jesus said this kingdom will grow like a mustard seed, right? And then we'll take over the whole world. And then today we see, you know, 2,000 years, it seems like it's growing and taking over the world. That should be evidence of the reality of Christ, that he is indeed the Messiah. And the fact that the church is growing in some of the most unlikely places. China. Need to pray for China. Yeah, the CCP is, you know, the communists are, are bad and it's a terrible thing, and it looks like they're going to take over the world. You need, to, uh, you need to understand something. They may they may create a dominance in this world for the next hundred years, but they don't know within China itself the church is growing by millions. And it would be irony among ironies, wouldn't it, in the next 50 to 100 years? that China take over the world and it just so happens the Christians take over China? Don't rule it out. God is in control. Even Russia, you know, we always think Russia is our enemy, but the church, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia, in communist countries, in Iraq, 
in Iran, of all places. The church is growing in Muslim countries. Don't, don't wave the white flag now. It's, it's still going. It's still taking over. And so no matter what the kings of this earth try to plan and try to do, just remember your Psalm 2, right? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because their plans will come to nothing and the kingdom will continue to grow. And just think of the fact that everywhere Christianity has taken root, there have been, there's been a profound, there's been profound social changes. Not that it's just a social gospel or, 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 or a social justice, but the fact of the matter is wherever Christianity has taken root and has grown, it has brought tremendous amount of social change to the world. I mean, Christianity put an end to the gladiator game. Christianity upheld the sanctity of life. You know when the, the Romans, when they had children, the dad, if he didn't want the kid, they would just take the kid and put him out on the side of the mountain and let the kid die out in the open. The Christians would come along and pick them up and raise them as their own. Put an end to that. Christianity ended slavery. Christianity condemned racism. Why? Because there is no race. There's only there's no races. There's one race, the human race. We are all created in the image of God. Christianity has elevated the role of women. After all, it was a woman who first was the first witness of the resurrection. And there are many other things in society that the world has tried to twist around and act as if Christianity has been bad for the world. But in reality, wherever Christianity has thrived and prospered, it has brought freedom to the world. And the, the countries that have embraced Christianity have prospered, prospered. But notice that the countries, like the United States, that the countries who are now turning away from Christianity and their Christian roots are in decline and losing their freedoms day by day. Because if God is not their God, then the government becomes their God. And rather than having freedom, they will be enslaved. And there's so many people that think that turning away from Christianity is a good thing, but it ultimately will enslave them. So the choice is either is this, really, the choice is this. It's either Christ or chaos. That, that's, what's, that's what we have to understand. It's either Christ, embrace Christ, or you embrace chaos. It's either freedom or slavery. You can't turn away from God and still be free. You will be enslaved. So what more evidence does the world need that Jesus is the Christ and that Christianity is true? Christians have been a blessing to the world wherever they've gone. And it's true, there have been bad things done in the name of the church, the inquisitions and all those things. 
but, but the church will always be a mixture of saints and sinners. There will always be bad people. And much of the things, the atrocities that happened even in the Crusades, if you read um, several books and go into the details, many of those atrocities were committed by pagan people or people who were not Christians who were marching under the banner of Christianity. And so Christianity gets a bad name because of their actions. But it's true. There's terrible things that have happened. That shouldn't surprise us. The church will be mixed with wheat and chaff. The church will have made bad decisions, but we're learning. And over time, after through repentance and reflection, hopefully, prayerfully, that will be corrected as we move along. Now, if the world would just look to Jesus like these Jews, they would realize that Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins. And why do they hate him for that? He came to save them, to give them eternal life. And Jesus even says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He came to promise the world, if they would trust in him, that they would be saved and have everlasting life. And it's a very simple thing, isn't it? Just trust. Just believe in Christ. But isn't it funny? It's the very thing that people refuse to do. Even on their deathbed, they refuse to do it. It just tells you how depraved the human heart is. That a sinner could turn away such a gracious gift from the Father. It's an amazing thing. And it was true of these in Jerusalem as well. Now let's look in verse 32, the reaction of the Pharisees. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things. Things like, maybe they believe he's the Messiah. Or they were hearing that some of the crowd was believing in Jesus. And other portions of the crowd decided that he wasn't the Messiah. So the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about all of these things. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they finally got their courage. Okay, Go, go arrest him. Go grab him. So um, what's interesting is we don't hear anything after they were sent. We don't hear anything about these temple police until we get down to verse 45 and 46. Evidently, they went to arrest him and they, they stopped and they began to listen to Jesus speak. And then in verse 45, it says, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him in? So they, came, they went out to arrest him. They listened to him. They came back. And they're saying, Well, where is he? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Now this was a temple police. They heard Probably about everyone speak in the temple who ever spoke. They heard all of the teaching. They heard the rabbis. They heard the priests. They heard all. They heard it all. But they were scared because they had listened to Jesus and they said, "No one has ever taught this way. This man has. No one has ever spoke like this man. There's something different about this guy." 
I mean, and they really did not want to arrest Jesus. Now, why did they not arrest Jesus? Well, ultimately, it's because his hour had not yet come. But certainly, God put fear in their hearts. They were more afraid of arresting Jesus than they were of the chief priests <laughs> and the scribes. And so they were powerless to stop Jesus from teaching in the temple. So he continued to teach. Now, in verse 33 and 34, Jesus warns the crowd. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That's a very interesting thing. This is a, this is a warning. This is what this is. Jesus is warning the crowd that the time to receive him is now. The time to receive him is quickly coming to an end. I'll only be here for a little longer. We know that six months from now is when he will be crucified. Jesus said, I'm only going to be here for a little longer, and then I'm going back to the Father. And in essence, he's saying, if you don't trust me that now, then there will be a time when you will seek me, and you will not find me. You'll, you'll call for me, and I won't be there to answer you. And the reason for that, and he says to them, where I am, you cannot come. Where he is going, you cannot come. This reminds me of the parable of the ten virgins, right? Five had oil in their lamp, the Holy Spirit. They were ready. Five were not. They were kind of looking for Jesus. And then when Jesus appeared in the wedding party, the five were ready. They had oil in their lamp. They went out to meet Jesus, the Christ, and then they were, uh, and then the other five had to go looking for oil. They were scrambling around to find oil, and by the time they got back, they were shut out of the wedding. And this is what this reminds me of. Jesus was warning them if they waited too long to believe in him and trust in him, it would be too late. And if they didn't trust him, they couldn't go where he was going. They couldn't come where he was going. Where was he going? He was going back to the Father. He was going back to heaven. So everyone who does not believe in Christ will not see heaven. They will be locked out of heaven forever. And they will not be able to go where Jesus is going. This is a warning. You're not going to be able to come where I'm going. Now this is so much different than what Jesus said to believers. He's talking to unbelievers here. I'm going to go away. I'm going away quickly. The window is closing. And when I go, if you haven't trusted me, you cannot come where I am going. But it's so different from what, he's, what, what he promised believers. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said this to his followers. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And then he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He's looking at the unbeliever saying, where I'm going, you can't come 
But then he looks at his disciples, his followers, where I'm going, I'm preparing a place for you so that I will come get you, and where I am, there you will be. There's a difference between unbelief and belief, difference between heaven and hell. That's why Jesus is warning them, I'm going to go away soon, and when I go, you will not be able to follow me. You will not be able to come where I've come because of their unbelief. So the Jews, they obviously missed this warning. They were not thinking that he was going back to heaven. They were thinking that he was going to another geographical location. Look in verse 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Yeah. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and to teach the Greeks? Well, not yet. Later, he will send the church out to do that very thing. That's what Paul was doing, going out preaching and teaching among the Greeks and the Gentiles and the, the Jewish dispersion. And uh, maybe they did know a little bit of their, their Old Testament that Abraham, his seed would be a blessing to all the nations. So they're, but they're not thinking heaven, he's going away to heaven. They're thinking he's going to go out and start preaching to the Gentiles and to the Jews among the Greeks. And then it says, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. What does he mean by that? They didn't understand. But we understand what Jesus meant, don't we? Now that we have, we see the whole historical way that it unfolded, that he was crucified and, and he died and he rose again on the third day. And then we, we've got to remember, R.C. Sproul said that the church really has neglected um, the focus on the ascension. We need, we need to focus more on the ascension than we actually have focused. Why? Because after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus ascended to the Father. And that's when he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's where Psalm 2 comes in, right? Sit at my right hand and I will make the nations your inheritance. Or Psalm 110, I will make all of your enemies a footstool. Jesus ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. And what did Jesus say, right, as he was ascending? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why are we afraid of anyone? Why are we afraid of anything if our Lord sits on the throne with all authority? And so we know what Jesus meant. And it is true. It is true even to this day. Life is short and we don't have much time. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And I'm sure there are millions and millions of people who know about Jesus. And there are a lot of people, maybe even people that we know, that know and have heard the gospel but have said, I'm not ready yet. They just kind of wait and they're putting it off. 
They're just not ready to believe yet. But if they keep putting it off, as Jesus warned the, the Jews, they might find that one day it will be too late. We should heed the prophet Isaiah when he said in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. I hope that's true of all of us today, that we're trusting in Christ. This is the mission that his father sent him, to die, to be beaten and mocked, spat upon, whipped, carried his own cross, crucified with, with spikes in his hands and feet. All the while, Jesus praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And why did he do all of that? To save you and to save me. That's why he came. And that's why there should be a sense of urgency for us, to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors. Seek the Lord now while he may be found. Call upon him while he, may, while, while he is near. Because you might not have another opportunity. And so I hope that's true of us, that we are trusting in Christ. And if not, I hope it will encourage us to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to be bold as lions to share that gospel with the world that so desperately needs it.